today's uh, message is what's often called an evangelistic sermon. Um, that means if you're here and you have not yet become a Christian, you're here because you're curious or maybe just because somebody invited you or that's what you do on Sundays, um, I'm going to be inviting you to trust in Christ as your Lord and your Savior by the, at the end of the service. Um, if you are a Christian, you sit through an evangelistic sermon. Let me mention a couple things you can do. Pray for people who aren't. You know, not everybody who goes to church has made that decision for Christ, so you can do that. But also listen, because um, we need to understand more clearly what God has done for all of us in order to appreciate what he's done and to live in it. So uh, Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31, but especially verses 21 through 26. So let me set this up. It's the 2004 American League Championship Series. The heavily favored New York Yankees are up three games to none over their arch rivals, the Boston Red Sox. That's a deficit from which no uh, team in history had ever come back. Three games to zero in the American Conference Championship games. The Yankees have a 4-3 lead. It's the bottom of the ninth just three outs away from the World Series. Their closer, Mariano Rivera, is one of the best closers in baseball history. He'd come on in the eighth to retire the side, but he's walked the first batter of the ninth. The Red Sox manager, Terry Francona, sends Dave Roberts to first to pinch run in the place of the guy who walked. On Rivera's first pitch to Bill Muller, Roberts steals second. First pitch, he's on second base. On the second pitch or third pitch, Mueller singles and Roberts makes it all the way from second to home and ties the score. So they go into extra innings. But Boston wins game four, and then they win game five, and then they win game six, tied up 3-3 in the American League Championship Series, and then they win game seven and become the American League champions. The moment that changed everything was the moment Terry Francona sent Dave Roberts into the game to pinch run. Before that moment, things couldn't have looked worse for the Red Sox. Vegas would have given 101 to 1 odds against them winning the series. Nobody had ever done it. But now, those are the words that open today's text. But now, a text which Leon Morris described as possibly the most important paragraph ever written. Remember where Paul has left us. It was the bottom of the ninth in terms of our lives. We were down as low as people could be, and Vegas's odds on us were about a million to one against. Paul has been arguing that the Gentiles had alienated themselves from God by their sins. When his Jewish reader said amen to that, he went on to say the Jews had done the same thing. In the last week's text, he showed using one Bible quotation after another that every person and every part of every person has been damaged by sin. A damaged re relationship with God has damaged all of us. And in case we're still missing the point, Paul, in verse 19, pictures all of us 
as defendants in a courtroom. We've been arguing our innocence, but new evidence has been brought forth and it's left us speechless and without defense. Every mouth silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's verse 19. Our attorneys even walked out on us. All that remains is our shame and the loss we'll experience when the judge hands down the sentence. And that's when we come to verse 21 and those words, but now. The manager has sent in the pinch runner, the Messiah Jesus, and that turns everything around. Let's read our text. We'll read verses 21 through 26, Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I've just said that everything was against us. We were speechless, without defense. All that remained for us was to hear the judgment against us and to suffer the inevitable loss that follows. Okay, but wait a minute. What judgment against us? And why? Yes, I'm a sinner, I admit it. But I didn't ask for this. I'm a sinner born to sinners in a world of sinners. Is God going to take me to trial for that? Is he going to send me to hell for that? What kind of good God would do that? But that's the wrong picture. Or at the very least, it's a badly distorted picture. Paul has been saying that the entire world is under sin. Those are his words. And because of that, war, God's wrath, is coming. Why? Because poor, weary sinners like us were led astray by deceitful desires? Because we were greedy or angry or lustful? Or maybe greedier and angrier and more lustful than other people? No, God's wrath is coming against a worldwide system of evil that has rejected its maker, rebelled against its rightful ruler, and made a mess of everything. We were born into that system. We have been taught by it, controlled by it. We followed its ways. That's how Paul put it to the Ephesians. We've gone along with it, been complicit with it. In Colossians, Paul refers to this system, which stands in opposition to God and is powered by spiritual forces of evil. There he calls it the dominion of darkness. Okay, but still, we didn't choose to be born into that dominion of darkness, into this system, and we were indoctrinated into it before we were old enough to know better. So is God really going to condemn us for something we couldn't control? Where's the justice in that? God isn't going to condemn anyone for being born into a fallen world and falling with it. That's not the story that the Bible tells. The way the Bible tells the story, 
God sent advanced warning of his intention to destroy this evil system and bring everything back under his control. And because you and I are part of that system that's going to be destroyed and complicit with it, we will face ruin, utter, irreversible, and eternal ruin. And then the words, but now. The turnaround moment has arrived. But now everything has changed. And it's changed because God sent Jesus into the world. He sent in that pinch runner. He's changed the calculus. Yes, the evil world system is still going to be destroyed. But none of us need be destroyed with it. God has offered pardon offered to take in refugees from the dominion of darkness, give them not only immigration status, but amnesty, full citizenship in the kingdom. God won't destroy anyone just because they were born under the evil dominion. But the evil dominion is doomed. That's part of the whole big story of the Bible. It is doomed. And if we refuse to leave it, if we ignore God's offer and refuse his pardon, if we refuse to submit to his authority, when judgment falls, we'll fall with it. Verse 21. So this is my translation. But now God's righteousness, and by the way, I'm going to leave all kinds of things out of these, these six verses that we're going to talk about today. These six verses are incredibly dense. They have been the source of all kinds of debate among scholars. Uh, I, a scholar that I appreciate much is a guy named Craig Keener. Craig Keener's written, read everything that's ever been written on Romans. Brilliant guy. He said, currently, I hold this position on one of these debatable things. And it just, it humors me. I mean, I, f I find it humorous. We're going to go deeper on Wednesday night. So if you're interested in all that kind of um, debatable stuff and what it all means and how it fits with us, come over to Bigby Coffee on Wednesday night. We'll talk further about it. But I'm not going to go into all that right now. I want to give us the bigger picture. Verse 21, but now God's righteousness has been revealed quite apart from law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it. God's righteousness through Jesus Christ's faithfulness to all who believe. What is God's righteousness? Now, this is important to understand in the bigger picture. It is not a personal attribute. It is a relational quality. So here's the difference. God possesses attributes, for example, like omniscience. He does not possess righteousness because righteousness isn't a possession. Even God, who's the epitome of perfection, could not be righteous if he were alone in the universe because righteousness requires relationship. To be righteous is to be right, to be just, to be good, even to be merciful in relationship to others. But God's righteousness has been called into question, certainly in our day, but also in Paul's day. And because of that, God has demonstrated his justice, that's verse 25, that's the same, that's exactly the same word that's translated righteousness before that. God has demonstrated his justice 
righteousness. Why did God think it was necessary to demonstrate his justice righteousness? Because he looked unjust, unrighteous. And why did he look unjust? Was it because he was cruel? As many modern day critics assert. No, it was because verse 25, in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And because verse 26, he justifies people who have faith in Jesus. See, God wants to justify everybody. He loves to justify people. He's like an immigration judge who approves every request for non-resident status that comes before him. God is not out to destroy people, but to save them before the dominion of darkness falls. And it's already rotten on the inside. He's opened the door to his kingdom wide. He's invited refugees to come in. He's promised, I will never drive away anyone who comes to me. That's what God is like. That's why St. Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's why Paul says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How funny it is that nowadays people say, how can God be just when he condemns sinners? But the ancients asked, how can God be just when he doesn't condemn sinners? That's verses 25 and 6. How can he be just and still justify people like us who've been complicit with the kingdom of darkness? People who haven't known his laws, haven't followed them, people who aren't even religious in many cases. But religion has nothing to do with it. Paul's going to explain how God can be just and yet justify sinners in the next two chapters. Chapters 4 and 5 are all about that. Here he simply affirms that it's true, that's verse 28, and that the criteria for justifying a sinner, so what does that mean, justifying a sinner? Conferring on that sinner legal status in his kingdom. That's very much like what Paul had in mind when he used the word justify. The criteria for justifying a sinner is faith in Jesus. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. Not just Jews, but verses 29 and 30, Gentiles too. That's the framework for this passage. Now, I know other people frame it differently. But that's what I believe to be the framework for this passage. But let's look inside the frame. Verse 22, there is no difference. That is, there is no distinction between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. It is hard to imagine any other rabbi saying such a thing. No distinction between Jews and Gentiles? How can that be? There's no distinction because all Jews and Gentiles have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verses, the end of verse 22 and verse 23 are a summary statement of everything that Paul has written since verse one, chapter 1, verse 18. This is what he's been saying all along. Now remember what we learned when we studied those texts. Sin is not just things like anger and greed and lust and gluttony. 
Those are the different kinds of fruit that sin bears. The root, though, is rejection of God, ignoring him and replacing him. Paul says this is the human condition. That's what's become of us. It's not just the condition of irreligious people, but of all people. The word translated falls short in the NIV in verse 23 is simply the verb to lack. Humans were made for God's glory, both to bring him glory, but also to be his glory, to express his glory. Read Psalm 8. But sin has deprived us of glory. Rabbis in Paul's time taught that Adam was glorious before the rebellion. Glorious as God's image bearer and his regent over creation. But when he rejected God's authority over him, he lost that glory. He lost himself. Humans were meant to live under God's rule in God's kingdom as God's regents. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But beginning with Adam, Genesis 3, humanity chose a different way to rule itself under a dominion where God's authority is not recognized. Humans set up an illegitimate rule in the dominion of darkness against which God has declared war. God sent Jesus to get people out of that dominion. I mean, people like you and me. To free them from sin and rebellion to redeem them, that's verse 24. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God made it possible for people from every race and ethnicity and religion to escape the dominion of darkness and join him in the kingdom of light. He provides them status, rights, and responsibilities in his kingdom in a place where life is very different. Another way of saying that he provides status for them in his kingdom is to say that he justifies people. They don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to receive resident status in his kingdom. They don't have to observe Jewish law, for example, circumcision, diet, festivals. Religion is not the basis for approval. Faith in Jesus is. Not faith that he lived or that he was a good teacher or even that he was God's son, though all those things are true. The faith Paul is talking about is faith in Jesus, the Savior who rescues us from the dominion of darkness and brings us into God's kingdom. It's faith that acknowledges Jesus as Lord, which is why Paul will later say in this letter, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's he talking about? He's talking about saved from the wrath that's coming on the dominion of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of God's Son. That's Colossians 1.13. Being justified is more than being forgiven. Being justified is being accepted by God and granted legal status, if you will, in his kingdom. This Jesus is the one whom, literal translation at the beginning of verse 25, the one whom God set forth as a, and then the next word is hard to translate, and it's been the source of endless debate. The one God sent forth as a, the King James Version says, propitiation, or the New American Bible, expiation, or there are other uh, uh, options. 
Propitiation refers to an act or an event that brings about a cessation of hostility. Once we understand the context of competing kingdoms, that word certainly fits here. Expiation refers to an act or event through which a person's wrongdoings are wiped clean. And that could also apply here. But there's another possibility. The NIV and many modern versions, they translate the single noun that Paul uses with the phrase sacrifice of atonement. That, to my mind, fails to capture the specificity of what Paul's saying. The word he chose is a very unusual word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It, it is the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of something very specific. The cover, known as the atonement cover, on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the animal sacrifice was poured once a year on the Day of Atonement. That sacrifice was made because of people's sins so they could continue in the community, the kingdom of God. That place, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, that's the word that he uses right here, Belasterion in Greek, was where sins were forgiven relationship restored, and the covenant with God maintained year after year. When God first instructed his people to build the Ark of the Covenant, Ark, by the way, just means box. Okay, Noah's Ark was Noah's box, just a gigantic box. This box is not gigantic, but it's covered in gold, and on top of it are placed two golden cherubim. And between the cherubim is this elasterion, the, the mercy seat is how the King James Version translated it. When God first instructed his people to build this Ark of the Covenant, that is the box that holds the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, remember they're kept in this box, the terms of the covenant or the testimony of the covenant. When he first told them to do this, this is what he wrote, place the cover on top of the Ark, the cover is the Hilasterion and put in the ark the testimony, the terms of the covenant, which I will give you. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, there at the Hilasterion, I will meet you. It was the place God met his people, the place he forgave their sins, accepted them, and kept his covenant with them. What Paul believed was that that place where God meets people, forgives their sins, accepts them, and keeps covenant with them, is now the cross where Christ's blood was shed. It was because of Christ's death that we escape wrath, have his acceptance, and become his people. It was at the cross that our citizenship in God's kingdom was purchased at great price. Unfortunately, many people think, yeah, but I don't need that, that religious stuff. I don't need that. I'm okay already. I'm better than most people I know. Well, first, that's probably not true. Since we all tend to exaggerate our positive characteristics, psychologists even have a term for that. They call it illusory superiority. Illusory superiority. We think we're better than we are. The Italian actress Sophia Loren, remember her sex symbol, sultry actress? 
she wrecked marriages. She was unfaithful to her partners. Who knows what else? But she once said, I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. That's illusory superiority. Okay, so first, it's probably not true that you're better than most people. But second, even if your superiority is not illusory, even if you are better than all the rest of us, it makes no difference. You're part of a system that's going to be destroyed. You're like a worker in a Nazi munitions factory in 1945 Dresden, making weapons in the war against the Allies. You work there like you've worked there for the last 30 years, like your dad worked there before you. And you follow orders, you take home your paycheck, you mind your own business, you even bring extra potato salad in your lunch to share with people. But when the fire falls, do you think you'll get a pass because you've been a nice guy? The Bible teaches the fire's going to fall. That this age is going to come to an end. And it, it's called in the Bible the restoration when God restores his rule and makes everything right, God will accept you into his kingdom. He will not exclude you because of your sins. Whatever you've done, he will even grant you citizenship if you will trust Christ Jesus, confessing him to be your Lord. Not words. More than that, you can escape God's coming wrath. You can serve his kingdom, become a member of the resistance, working for the rightful king right under the nose of the dark dominion. You can come over to his side and be welcomed. What you can't do is ignore him and expect to get a pass when the fire falls. Karen and I were in the Holy Land a couple of years ago, and I was talking to an Israeli about the war in Lebanon against Hezbollah. He told me that whenever Israel was about to attack some site, so one of the sites from which they were launching missiles, which were in neighborhoods to hide them and to, to prevent the Jews from attacking them, um, or the the tunnels that were being built into Israel or the weapons storage facilities there, whenever they were about to wipe one of those out, they would first drop thousands of pamphlets urging people to leave the target area and get to safety because the bombs were coming. They'd tell them, we're going to bomb this place. So get out so that everybody will be safe. They wanted to avoid collateral damage. They didn't want to kill people. Similarly, God has let us know destruction's coming. He's done so through our consciences, through his word, and through the announcement of the gospel. He's urged us to escape by turning to him and trusting in his son. That's why in the end of Acts chapter 2, St. Peter urges people to escape this corrupt generation. He's offered to take us in. Everyone who applies to him for refuge. It, that offer costs more than we can possibly understand. It cost his son. 
We don't need to go through some extreme vetting to be accepted into his kingdom. Admission is not based on race or religion or ethnicity. We don't have to prove our suitability by keeping a thousand religious rules. There's one ground for acceptance and one only. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the kingdom. Now, if you're not sure that's true, I understand your hesitancy and honor your honesty. You're not ready to make a change. Okay. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're thinking about this. But if you are sure, if your heart and mind have been telling you to come to Christ and join his side, don't wait. The pamphlets are dropping, but it's not too late. God will let you into his kingdom even if you come at the last minute. He will never turn away anyone who comes to him. Come to him. Join his side. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to invite you in a moment to come while the hymn is playing or after the, the song is done and meet with one of our prayer helpers. If you say it's time, I'm ready to become a Christian. Knowing what that means, it means ready to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of your life and Lord of all the earth. Would you do that? Don't put it off. God of peace, we know that you didn't send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We thank you that in your patience, you want everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Lord, you've brought some of us to that knowledge of the truth and maybe some more even today. Thank you for that. Thank you for the redemption that came through Jesus Christ our Lord. You've saved us. And it wasn't because of anything we did, but because of your mercy. Thank you, merciful God. Amen. Let's stand together.